Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. As for you, my fine friend, you're a victim of disorganized thinking. The Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. And I'm David Bazaar from Cornell University. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! And today we are going to ask the question whether people can handle the truth about free will and moral responsibility. This is part two of our podcast on free will and moral responsibility. Part one was recorded a while back um, and far away from where we are now. Where are we now, Dave? We're in uh, Costa Rica in a city called Nosara, right on the coast, uh, well known for its surf and uh, for its beautiful forest. And beautiful beaches. Beautiful beaches. Um, And why are we here? Well, uh, John Johnson, who is the founder and director of the Harmony Institute, has established a Philosophers in Residence program and for some reason has chosen us as his inaugural participants. So we are here uh, in a beautiful hotel called the Harmony Hotel, right on the beach with amazing food and all the time in the world to record uh, these podcasts. Right. So uh, well, our official activity. Six days. Six seven days. days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, so, okay, so what is the truth that we can't handle? Well, so this is uh, – the reason we played that clip is uh, there's a philosopher, Saul Smolansky, who believes that we don't have the kind of free will that can make us morally responsible in a deep sense. He thinks what philosophers call libertarian free will – uh, a kind of ability to be the true source of your character and your actions. That's what you need to really deserve blame and praise for your actions. Uh, and he thinks that if you uh, tell people that they don't have it, as many neuroscientists have begun to do, like Sam Harris and Jerry Coyne, that this will have disastrous effects on uh, on their behavior. Let me just read to you a passage just to give you an example. So he talks about uh, the firefighters from 9-11. And he says, Envisage a situation in which a few of them who survived after losing most of their mates and perhaps being physically harmed themselves are sitting around and talking about things. Assume that a hard determinist philosopher or a Sam Harris or a Josh Green or a Jerry Coyne, comes in and tells them that fundamentally they are not better than any common thief or rapist, 
well, that's controversial right there. We could talk about it. Explaining that ultimately everyone is, uh, is what he is as an inevitable outcome of forces beyond his control. Do you think they would welcome this philosopher or that if one or two of them were to listen to him and begin to understand and internalize what he was saying, that these people would not feel that something very unpleasant and deeply threatening was being said? And he goes on to say that uh, these firefighters and all the great heroes of history, the Danes who kept uh, Jews from being killed by the Nazis at risk to their own life, would feel like all these acts of great risk and heroism are drained of their moral value. That's the first thing, and that's how they would feel, and that would, that would be devastating to them. The second thing is that these heroes, should they internalize these so-called truths, that, that they would be less likely to engage in heroic uh, activity in the first place because they would think, what's the point? If it's inevitable that I do this and everybody knows that, then I'm not going to really deserve praise in a deep sense, and I won't, the, the actions won't have moral worth. So, so this is not unlike the uh, – you don't need to go to a philosopher even to find this intuition. I think that we've had experience when we talk to uh, students in, in our classes and we introduce the problem of determinism and, and libertarianism and we sort of uh, give students this the sense that perhaps there is no such thing as free will in the way that they thought existed. A lot of them express this sort of feeling of threat. And end up with 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 this sense that well then we might as well just not do anything or do whatever we want or there's no there's no point in in trying to do the right thing or in even even uh, not doing the wrong thing because I can't be blamed right and you know we've talked a little bit about this last time how that can take extreme forms where they ask why they shouldn't uh, become serial killers or Jerry Sandusky level child molesters <laughs> uh, which. I mean, I think we both believe is crazy. I mean, right, it's not, it's not thought, right? They, they don't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no free will, so you know, let me go kill somebody and eat right. skin off their face. Right. Uh, I mean, it's like you don't ask yourself, why shouldn't you eat the poop? <laughs> I think we should play that. Clip. <laughs> yeah. We won't play the eat the poopoo clip, but uh, at some point, I want to play the eat the poopoo clip. <laughs> Uh, I mean, you're not. It's not that you're going to be. The knowledge of free will is going to make you do things that you already find abhorrent and disgusting. Right. Um, but there is the question of whether it will make you more immoral or feel less like your life or your achievements have value. And there's been some empirical work uh, that appear to give a little support to uh, to that worry, to Smolansky's worry, at least in its more right. modest form. So you want to talk about. Yeah, uh, your so, friend Schooler and Vaz and right. the study. So, so I think that the, the plausible, if there is such a threat that that spreading this belief that libertarianism doesn't exist, and and I think that we've, we've libertarian sort of been, free will, libertarian free will doesn't exist, and and I think that we've been uh, been been sort of assuming that most scientists or most uh, and most philosophers, most philosophers, except that most level-headed philosophers, accept that 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 kind of free will probably doesn't exist. Um, so I, I think the more plausible threat is that people might just – it might have this demotivational influence. That is, in situations where you might exert your will in order to do the right thing, you may just be less likely to do so because you don't, you don't feel uh, as sort of motivated. You don't feel the agency 
that you might have felt um, when you did believe in such a thing as, as free will. And so Schooler and Vaz did, I think, the first example of a, of a study trying to test this very thing. And what happens when you actually tell people that they don't have free will? Do they actually change their behavior? In this case, behavior was ethical behavior. Um, and what they did was they borrowed a paradigm that's been used by others, including Dan Ariely, who's used it probably the most, which is to give students a, an opportunity to engage in cheating behavior. Um, so basically, students are given the opportunity to solve a certain amount of math puzzles. For each puzzle, they, each problem they solve, they get paid a certain amount of money. Um, and what happens is if if you set up the conditions right, that, that you tell them you'll pay them for the number of math problems solved, but you don't actually have any, you don't require any proof of their solving it. Uh, what you often find is that students fudge the truth. That is, they over-report how many math problems they solved. And you can see this by actually being sneaky and looking at the results later or just by comparing the average number of problems uh, one group solved versus another. So what they did was they actually told half of the participants, and by told, I mean they gave them a passage. In this case, it was a passage from Francis Crick describing this this sort of horrible truth that there is no such thing as freedom. That and the, this was a scientific consensus. This is, that's right. That's right. That, that sort of matter in motion since the Big Bang is what causes everything, including our behaviors. And so there really is no sense in clinging to the illusion of freedom. And uh, another set of participants got a control condition, which was not such a threat about free will. It was, it was just another passage from a book uh, that had nothing to do with free will. And then they, both groups of students were given the opportunity to uh, solve these math problems in exchange for money. And uh, what they found was that, in fact, the students who got this threatening free will passage were more likely to cheat. That is, they were more likely to over-report the amount of math problems they had solved in order to get money. So um, the conclusions that Schooler and Vaz draw in this paper are sort of grand. They're, they're sort of they, – they endorse that this, this belief must be true, that, that perhaps it's, it's, it is that we can't handle the truth or at least when the truth is made obvious to us. Uh, we are more likely to throw caution to the wind and engage in unethical. Here's the, here's the actual conclusion. Uh, they say, does the belief that forces outside the, t- the self determine behavior drain the motivation to resist the temptation to cheat, inducing a, quote, why bother mentality? Or perhaps denying free will simply provides the ultimate excuse to behave as one likes. Right. All right, so let's talk about a f- couple of potential problems with this study. Right. Um, and does it really show what it intends to show? Because we kind of disagree a little bit about this. Right. Uh, first problem uh, uh, is the question about alternate explanations. Is it really this uh, belief in free will that's getting shaken up that's doing the work and making them less cooperative? Or uh, after hearing that any cherished belief that you have is threatened, you might be more likely to to cheat or, or, or fail to cooperate, right? So, I mean, uh, someone who's deeply religious, if they read a passage saying that there's no God and that that's the scientific consensus is there's no God, they might be more willing uh, to cheat. Uh, someone who just heard that their dog died or that their mother was a poor or something, <laughs> uh, might be more willing to cheat. Uh, 
Right. Any sort of deeply cherished belief that gets threatened might just give people a sense of, well, why, you know, why, why even bother doing what I'm doing? It might deflate them for a variety of reasons. And, and, uh, and you know, another possible explanation is that you don't even need to threaten a belief that any source of negative affect um, might be enough to make people engage in something like unethical behavior. So you might be, if you put them in a bad mood by showing them a film clip, as, as many social psychologists have done, um, uh, shown the effects of negative moods on judgment and behavior, perhaps that th- this would actually be the same thing. So it's unclear whether at the level of the independent variable, the manipulation is actually manipulating what they think that it's manipulating. Now, the second problem, and you can actually see it a little bit in this final passage, if I can find it again. Uh, and this is something that my colleague Eddie Namias has pressed about this study is uh, it might be that, that these people are not hearing that there's no libertarian free will. In other words, that... Uh, forces beyond their control ultimately determine their characters. Forces like their genes and their environment uh, ultimately determine uh, who they are and what their behavior is. But they might be making the additional claim that our intentions and our desires and our deliberations have no even immediate causal effect on our behavior. And that that's the thing that's threatening to people's motivation. That's the thing that makes people maybe more likely to to cheat or less likely to cooperate. And again, you can see it uh, right here. So uh, in this last paragraph, they say, does the belief that forces outside the self determine behavior? Now, determinism doesn't imply, right, or the lack of libertarian free will, that doesn't imply that forces outside the self don't determine our behavior uh, approximately. What it implies is that ultimately these uh, our behavior uh, is caused by factors that trace back beyond our control before we were born, maybe all the way to the Big Bang or maybe up till some random quantum whatever that was that was random but equally out of our control. Uh, so it's and, and I think Voz and Schooler, Voz and Schooler have been rightly criticized for failing to make the distinction between determinism or lack of uh, libertarian free will and uh, the the worry that our uh, conscious deliberative processes, our our, our t- intentions and motives. Uh, that those things don't have causal effect on our behavior, that they are, to use the philosopher's term, epiphenomenal, that they just sort of hang there while something else is actually doing the direct causal work. And right. that's not an implication of determinism. That, has no, that, that might be a, 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 an additional threat to free will, but it's not an implication. Uh, right. And so, so this is actually where, where Boston Schooler you know as psychologists they're not they're not used to these these sorts of distinctions and so one one can blame them only in so much as psychology has not even though they've taken it's to a doing studies, important distinction it, it is and even though they've taken to doing these studies psychologists have not s- sort of become that well versed in the philosophy of freedom uh, and free will but, although you or know so while, to do while I agree with with you and Eddie that this distinct distinction needs to be made that is that your intentions and desires might cause your behavior, but those might themselves be determined. Um, or you might have a situation where your intentions and desires actually have no causal force at all. 
Um, I'm not so sure that in this study that, that what participants are worried about is that their intentions uh, are, are, were determined and, and or that their intentions have no causal power. I, I don't know that they even get that far. Um, uh, I, I think that let, when they let read... Let me ask you this, yeah. right? You're a funny guy, right? Uh, I, I like to think so and tell like everybody so and, and uh, yeah. put it on, now, it's on my uh, resume. One way you know that you're funny is that people, uh, when you're around and you make a joke, at least a good percentage of the time, people laugh at the jokes. And uh, now I take it, you don't think you're in any way kind of ultimately responsible for being funny. You had a funny dad. You uh, you have some some funny genes. And right. It's not like I didn't wake up at six in the morning. You know, every sure. every morning and like you know drink egg white and work on my routine. Right. right? I, I I sort of think that to the extent that 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 if I am funny at all, it's just sort right. of an accident of my genes and my environment. It's a nice. It's a it's an accident. It sort of right. makes up for the fact that you're not. All that good luck. Right. Uh, it's God's way of making it's, that. <laughs> but now, there's a big difference. Now, 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 as someone who also deludes himself into thinking that he's funny, right? It doesn't bother me at all that, uh, that those things are ultimately determined beyond my control. But if I were to find out that actually people aren't laughing because of my joke, but they're laughing because of some other process... That uh, that actually my deliberations and my thoughts and my little thoughts that pop into my head about some gross and offensive thing to say at the at you know with with some decent timing. If I thought that's actually not what was making them laugh, but something else was making them laugh, that would take the value out of being out of being funny. Right, right. So if it was if it was just that just that your funny comments happened to coincidentally match up with uh, the release of, of funny laughing gas. Yeah. Right. And so that. so you found out that it wasn't actually your comments at all. It's that whenever you actually happened to say something funny, somebody was right behind you spraying laughing gas. Uh, certainly, I would I would be deflated by that. So, so that's what you're saying. So, I mean, is that a good analogy? I, I, no, it is. It is. I definitely think so. And I, I think I, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't believe that intentions that it wouldn't be threatening to know that your intentions didn't matter. I I think what I'm saying is that it would be pretty threatening anyway to think at least I, I think that the 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 thought that you have no ultimate control, even if it's mediated by your intentions and desires, would be just as threatening to to their sense of moral responsibility. Now, I don't, as you point out with that example, I don't think that it ought to be. That is, right. I, I I agree with you that that there There's would two be separate quests. right there would be moral value in say being a person of good character, even if ultimately your character was determined solely by your genes and your. Head. Well, this leads to my second criticism of the study because you just said. You think it would be threatening to these people, but you don't think it ought to be, right. which I'm going to interpret for my purposes as once you think about it more carefully, you will realize that it's actually uh, shouldn't be threatening. Now, uh, given that, it seems like when we're if we're really worried, like Smolansky and I think Vaz and Schooler. Smolansky uh, doesn't sound like a real name, by the way. <laughs> so it's like you had to make up a name right really quickly for a lie, and you're like, oh, it's Smolansky. His name is Saul Smolansky. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> continue. Here, here's my criticism: is that I, I and, and going off your point, where right away you might actually be worried about uh, the idea that there's no free will in this ultimate sense, and you might maybe 
be motivated to cheat more or less motivated to cooperate. And we're assuming, for the sake of argument, that the other confounds aren't what's doing the work, that it's that. But the really important question, at least from my point of view, and I think I, I think just objectively speaking to some degree, is how would people react once they've had some time to really internalize this and really think about what the implications are and clear up any misconceptions that they might have about what the determinism is ruling out and what it isn't determining. Just let me finish. <laughs> and, uh, and so... The idea that 15 minutes later they're they're they're, they're more likely to cheat, okay. But yeah. uh, in terms of trying to, in terms of getting at the question of what's going to happen when people really uh, internalize that uh, ultimately our behaviors and characters are determined by forces beyond our control, I, I don't see how this study sheds any light on that question. So. Uh, t- First of all, I think that it's very cute that you think that people would reasonably reflect and come to the objective uh, conclusion that this isn't a deep concern. Um, but <laughs> cute in the sense that it's cute adorable that, that it, a philosopher. It's adorable. It's adorable and, that like, you think naive. that people people would not only reflect enough to reach some sort of reasonable conclusion, but that that reasonable conclusion would be the very one that you believe um, about it not being a threat. Uh, but before, but, but well, aside, I'm assuming they've, they're going to read my work. Aside, aside from the, the the part of my criticism that's just about patronizing you uh, on on recording, um, the you could be saying one of two things. One is that they would, uh, upon reflection, even after reading this sort of threatening passage, they would realize that this actually has no implications because they they would realize that. Uh, that their conclusion that they ought not to do the right thing or or not make any effort at all would be wrong because this doesn't follow. The other thing you could be saying is that uh, they could read this and uh, and simply their motivation wouldn't change. They would never internalize the belief that they weren't free. And I'm not sure which of the two... I'm saying the first, but you believe the second, right? I do believe the second, but, uh, but, uh, but, so... But but I'm also assuming, right, because the question is, what happens if this belief becomes widespread? Now, if the belief becomes widespread, then it works its way into our legal system, maybe it works its way into the education system, maybe it works its way into you know, popular culture in, in certain ways. And so it's not like they just have to remember that one time they read, you know, that right. book by Sam Harris or that book by Dirk Paraboom. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of assuming that forces converge a little because then I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I, I guess I almost certainly agree with you because I know that my students, uh, after they get back the initial shock of denying free will, then, and I think we talked about this too, then it sort of becomes cool to deny free will. Right, right. And right. then they're sort of like, yeah, you know, it's, uh, and every once in a while someone will say, this is totally changing the way I, I, I uh, deal with people and deal with the world. And you see them a year later, now they have a kid, or they're, uh, you know, or they're just in, in taking other classes, and I don't think they they're, think about they're it at all. A, yeah. They haven't given it a second thought, and, and, and right, probably <laughs> rightly so. Right, right. Right. Uh, but, but, but suppose that they were sort of, you know, they, they did become the sort of person who internalizes it and, and tries to live their life by this knowledge that there is no free will. You believe that they would become just simply, uh, they, they would, they, they would... Fail to 
conclude what they conclude in those first 15 minutes. It's, I just think the analogy of God, you know, I think people get all paranoid and hysterical about what will happen if atheism becomes more widespread. And then once you've become an atheist, I mean, did you go through that? Did you uh, used to well, believe in God and then... Uh, and, and you know there was an initial shock. Right. And so, I think the, it, and so my spiritual beliefs spectrum. The right? change in my spiritual beliefs has had uh, no impact on anything but my uh, engagement in religious ritual. Right. So so uh, it it is true that there was no 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 time in which uh, in which my sort of in- increasing doubt in the God that I was raised to believe in actually changed my ethical behavior or anything like that. But I, but. So, so I grant that, but but it also it is also. And it's not because you just stopped thinking about the fact. You just went back to believing that there was a god in exactly the same way you right, used to believe. Right, 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 right. So, I think that it's just it's a difficult thing, and maybe this this will get to to some of what I've argued in print that that it's difficult to actually maintain the belief that we don't have freedom. Uh, in our day-to-day lives, and and I think that, that kind dis- of libertarian. Well, uh, so I, I think that a distinction here could is, have done otherwise. Freedom. Yeah, I think that a distinction needs to be made here because I actually think that what I'm saying is that 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 libertarian could have done otherwise. Freedom is a, a rare thought to even have. I think that most of the time when people think of what it means to be free in the sense of being responsible, what they mean is agency. What they mean is intending to do something, deliberating about it. And I think that that gets conflated. So it's yeah, well, right, right. But I think it gets conflated. I think that sometimes when you tell people that the world is nothing but atoms in motion, uh, that they then figure, and maybe this is Namius's point after all, yeah, that that uh, that there is no such thing as agency. And but I think that 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 really would be difficult. Um, but. But let's just say that there are philosophers who do think that this ought to change. This belief ought to change our legal system, right? Yeah. And so, so and for now, instance, not just philosophers. Now, this is this is a bandwagon now that. Uh, well, look. I, I mean, Skinner was doing it earlier. P.F. Skinner. Uh, B.F. Sorry, B.F. Skinner. <laughs> my, my student made that mistake. Uh, we were doing P.F. Strauss, and yeah. was like, oh, but he didn't he become a behaviorist later? And then everyone had a laugh. There's something a little pretentious about going by your first two initials, right? Yes. Uh, unless it's like B.J. Or <laughs> 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 <Right>, anyway. <laughs> but, so, uh, so, but the belief is, I mean, so Josh Green actually believes this. Like, if only we could convince people that uh, there is no such thing as free and will, and, 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 and by showing them, especially showing them pictures of the brain so they'll know that it's just yeah. a machine like any other... That, that in fact we will shake this naive belief in deserving blame or deserving punishment and right, we will right. become less retri- uh, retributive, we'll be more compassionate uh, right. and I think just more easygoing about our own uh, so, so those people are optimists about this. So, those, what, yeah, right. the, uh, those people are optimists and, I, and you know my first paper that I published was also extremely extremely optimistic about it because you know people like pf strawson i mean there are a lot of you know at the time everybody was pretty much of the pessimist and they thought we could never have real love <laughs> deny free will right uh right. which just seemed crazy to me it, it's, i don't have the quote here but uh there was some philosopher who wrote that if i learned that my that my wife or husband or lovers uh 
relationship with me is just the product of forces that were determined so by genes and, right. and, and environment or something like that, that the, the love would take a strange, dark color. Which right. I don't even know what that means, but it's supposed to be really bad and really sort of creepy. Um, and, and that just strikes me as as insane. That strikes me as as somebody that uh, has has has, pro- has has problems. Because but, look, uh, first of all, a lot of people have already this idea of soulmate, and it was meant to happen, our love and stuff like right. that. And second of all, you know, I use this example in, in in the paper, but like think about your love for a dog. And I have deep and often inappropriate love for my dogs. Right. And now, dogs, you know, they've been trained, right? They've been trained uh, to love you. They've been bred to love you. You've been, you've picked, you know, you, 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 you this my so, so let let me catch the implication of what you're saying. So, if if the reason that uh, that your wife fell in love with you was because of hypnosis, you'd be perfectly fine with it. No, but that's different, right? <laughs> Although, think about like Tristan and Isolde or something like that, where it essentially was that. But it's not hypnosis, right? It's just that we both. She grew up like I grew up as a product of her genes and environment, right. and we and we connected. But isn't the intuition here that what if everything is just a case of hypnosis? I mean, isn't that the you start it, it, you start with like the the robot that's been pre-programmed, like the data, or you start with the hypnosis, you start with the mind control, and but, then you work your way to what if we're all like that? Yeah, I know, but that's just not the appropriate. Uh, uh, move to make because there's a difference between hypnosis and growing up with there's a very significant difference one is that you are not being controlled you're not being controlled by anybody Uh, you're not being manipulated by anybody and I don't know did you ever this seems almost antithetical to the idea of love this idea that it must be a free choice. I choose to love you. You don't choose to love somebody. You love them. Uh, and you're happy you do. And you're happy, hopefully, that they love you. But it's not a choice. It's like with people who talk about homosexuality being a choice. As if one right. day they just thought about it. You know, should I be attracted to men or should I be attracted to women? This is what always cracks me up about the fear that there's a homosexual agenda. Like if like Hollywood is pushing this gay agenda so, so that if you go to too many movies... Like, uh, it's just going to convince you to be gay. Right. And I was, I was like, is that really a temptation? Like, when you go to a movie and you're like, you know, I never thought about it, but doing a guy, yeah, there's a... There's a t- <laughs> I mean, those things are determined pretty early in life. I mean, at <laughs> okay, least they but, were for me. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's take a break. When we come back, let's talk about some studies. So you... Because it's interesting. You brought up that uh, you think people's true idea of freedom and responsibility when they're not being uh, when they're not being contaminated by philosophers or science or, or certain kinds of scientists is really more just agency which right. is more the compatibilist kind of understanding of what free will uh, and responsibility really is let's talk about some studies done by philosophers and the occasional psychologists that uh, either challenge or support that idea so join us uh, for part two of our podcast.
homosexuals do in the privacy of their bedroom? One of the things they do is called anal leaking, where they, a, a man's anus is leaked like this by the other person, like ice cream. And then what happens, even poo-poo comes out. The other one poo-poo's out, huh? and then they eat the poo-poo. Sex practice. <laughs> <laughs> See if there's no free will, why not uh, eat the poop? <laughs> that's the that's the question. The, the only thing I can say about this is that it's, this it is... has absolutely nothing to do with our discussion of free will, but but it does have something to do with uh, the question of disgust and, uh, and ethical judgment, which I mean, which will be a forthcoming episode of our podcast. Um, I think this is you, you think that the question point. of free will is all about eating the poo poo. It's it's not all about it, but it's that's it's no, no, it's, 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 it's a significant a, portion. Maybe that's the truth that we can't <laughs> handle. <laughs> That <laughs> we have to eat the poop. <laughs> All right. Uh, getting back to uh, this question. The, the idea that, say, the firefighters of 9-11 or uh, a lot of other people who have risked uh, death or risked serious injury to help somebody else, the idea that we wouldn't admire them anymore, that there's no true moral value to those actions – um, just because we learned that ultimately they were determined uh, by forces outside of their control uh, seems to me to be, I guess I wrote this, a kind of Kantianism gone wild, a kind of crazy uh, notion of what moral value and moral worth is, that it has to be something that is that has its source entirely in, in the person. And uh, and in, in deliberation, I mean, in, in yeah, sort and of, in choice, yeah, and in in a kind of choice where there was a true metaphysical uh, opportunity to do otherwise, I, and it just seems that seems to me to be so wrong. And, and 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 some of the examples that he uses to support his view on this, I've used those very same examples as kind of to show the absurdity of that view. Well, Imagine if you're saved by one of these. Uh, firemen in 9-11 or your whole family has been saved by a Danish family uh, who hid you from the Nazis, the idea that you're going to not value what they did or not be grateful uh, for what they did or think that there's no moral worth to their action because of determinism seems to me uh, just radically implausible and something that I can't imagine anyone would would really feel. Right, and and so to use the positive domain as a way to pull our intuitions here really doesn't seem right because, if anything, uh, the positive domain is usually, as you say, a case in which people's intuitions are pretty darn compatibilists. Like, it it rarely is the case that, that people would... So, in the case of the firefighters, the whole point of their training is to make uh, their actions in those kinds of situations habitual, right? You train, you train, you train, so that you don't even have to think twice to run into the building, right? It, it would be really weird for someone to say, well, they don't deserve praise. That was just purely just conditioned behavior. Um, and in, in fact, uh, early on, I did a study with, this was with Eric Allman and Peter Salovey, as part of my dissertation, showing that, in fact, in the positive domain, people don't seem to care. So, uh, so, Think of the, the case in which somebody does something out of an extreme emotion. Uh, so in the case of anger, somebody, somebody just sees red and hits someone in the face. 
people are willing to say, well, maybe they didn't have control over that because, you know, emotion kind of takes over. Their, but nobody ever says this in the, in the positive domain. No, nobody says, well, the guy, you can't give him credit for his charitable donation because it was, he was just overwhelmed with sympathy. Um, and after all, sympathy and emotion is it's outside. He was born sympathetic and that he was overwhelmed, and so you don't get... So, in fact, people don't. They have this asymmetry. It's in the positive domain. They, they're nowhere near as sensitive to this issue of control as in the negative domain. Susan Wolf, the philosopher, has a nice example of this exact right. same thing where somebody... I stole the idea from her to do studies, right? Yeah. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Uh, the the uh, where someone's drowning and uh, you know there's one person who has to deliberate and then makes this choice to go right. in and save them and another person who's just holy crap I got to save that person and it's just purely determined by their character and uh, that they're going to just go in right. and save them they don't have they don't have to think about it at all and she points out that if anything. That guy seems more praiseworthy yeah. than the guy that has to think about it, um, and I, you know, that's that's uh, I think that's an interesting point. Also, Zimbardo, I remember talking to Zimbardo when I interviewed him, and he said he was doing some work on heroism. Oh, what? Sorry, I had to move because uh, the the names were dropping, and I had yeah, to get sorry, out of the way. Got, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, I should introduce you to Zimbardo. You, you'd like him. I, you Bobby know. De Niro told me never to drop names. <laughs> yeah, I remember Marty. Uh, <laughs> so uh, what he said is he was doing work on heroes. Uh, by the way, he won't return my emails anymore. <laughs> Phil Zimbardo. Uh, the, but also when you call him Phil Zimbardo, <laughs> Philip Zimbardo, that's pretty bad. All right. My apologies. So uh, he says, you always interview heroes afterwards. Like somebody, he was talking about somebody who, who jumped into the subway to save a kid that wasn't his own kid right, at, uh, right before the subway hit him. He came out and they said, how did you get yourself to do it? And they say, I have no idea. I was not thinking. I didn't. It was just a, it was literally like somebody uh, pushed me down there and I, and I did it. And I have no idea how or why or anything like that. And it's the, it's, it's, it's the opposite of a choice, right? right? It almost is like you're hypnotized. But again, if you're that kid's parent, uh, well, then in that case, uh, no moral worth to that action. Yeah, no, it's a little ridiculous. And I mean, I, I think your example of, of love here is, is a good one because uh, <clears throat> it would be really odd if... Uh, you know, every time, say, you were presented with the opportunity to, to be unfaithful to your wife, you sort of weighed the pros and cons and realized that the right thing to do was to not. What you want is somebody who, who sort of... Is she g- at the level of hotness <laughs> yeah. multiplied by the probability that I'll get caught? Right, right. Uh, this is how economists There's a formula. <laughs> it's a good... Actually... Uh, so, uh, right, that would that's not what you want in a husband, right? right? You, so... So you, you want you want somebody who who's whose character is good. And what we mean by character is good is that their inclination, that their their react the reflexive action is to do the right thing. And that makes sense because if you're surrounding yourself with people, you want them to not not have to deliberate every time uh, they're they're confronted with the possibility of stabbing you in the back to make an extra buck or whatever. You know, you want that automatic. So so it seems that that we don't care. So is it is it correct to say that we're compatibilists in the in the positive domain? I, I think yeah. Well it seems extremely plausible and I would say significantly more plausible in uh, in the case of praise than in the case of blame. I mean right. again So determinism at, doesn't seem to pull does doesn't threaten praise in the same way. 
uh, that it, as that it, it threatens blame. blame. But let's think of how it might uh, threaten blame. And, uh, and let's talk about some of these experimental philosophy studies uh, pioneered by Adinamius, who we've talked about. Uh, but I think maybe I'll talk about uh, the Nichols and Nobes study, get your thoughts on it. I, I, I assume you have some. Uh, so they did a study where they gave – they described a universe. One was deterministic. One was not deterministic. Uh, in the deterministic one, everything that a person chooses has been determined by factors that trace back before they were born. Uh, in the non-deterministic universe, almost everything is determined, but the one exception is human choices. And so even if everything is the same up till that point, a person could – order french fries or they could not order french fries uh and um and then they ask there's two conditions in it the first is an abstract condition they say could a person be fully morally responsible in the deterministic universe and in that condition most people uh answer no right then they give the condition where uh, a guy wants to marry his, his secretary, and so he locks uh, his family, his wife and three kids, in the house and burns down the house ha- and, and, and you know, as, arranges it so the house will burn down and they can't get out so that he can run, with, run away with his secretary. And they ask, in the determinist universe, is he morally responsible? Does he deserve blame? And now, all of a sudden, people give the compatibilist answer, which is, yes, he still deserves blame, even though everything's determined. So those two things are, are inconsistent, uh, which you can interpret a lot of different ways. But at least in that study, they, by running a few other sub-studies, determined that it's actually the emotion of uh, how you feel towards that guy is, in some sense is distorting the, your true beliefs about moral responsibility and right. determinism. So they actually come down on the incompatibilist side in that paper. So it, it really is the, the, their, the view that they defend is that the, the reasonable view is the abstract condition and the distorted view is the emotional condition. Yeah, that's right. a tentative conclusion that, they, that, that our emotions are distorting our our true beliefs. Right. Uh, and, you know, so that would be a very welcome result for the Josh Green, uh, Sam Harris uh, crew because right. it shows that people really do think you need indeterministic free will in order to be morally responsible for, for their behavior. Now, what, how do you – what's your reaction to so, that? So I, I like the study um, and, I, and I actually – I, I really like the, the manipulation of sort of vivid versus abstract, uh, but I think that I conclude something a little different, which is that the natural condition is, in fact, the what they, they call their vivid or emotional condition, uh, the non-abstract one, and that, that um, in fact, our everyday life is, is reacting emotionally to individuals who commit wrongs, whether they, they, they wrong us or whether they wrong some third person. Uh, and that's how we go about doling blame and punishment, that, that it's very rare that we're thinking of these things in that abstract condition. So the only thing that I think I would disagree with is their interpretation <clears throat> that, that emotion is distorting us. Um, and, I, you know, I get that, that, that... You need, you actually, I mean, this is something they considered, but I don't think they ruled out possibly. What you're saying, if I get you right, is you need concrete... 
emotional sorts of reactions in order to really uh, address the question in its uh, in all of its reality, or that didn't make any sense. I, I mean, I, I guess that what it is is that that our very concept of blame is built around interpersonal it, these sort of interpersonal situations where we have to deal with people who have either wronged us or wronged someone we care about, and so that is, I think, the default belief. Now, you know, independent of a normative claim, because I mean, part of what it means to say that it's the distorted the distortion of, of a belief uh, of the right view is, is has to do with what you believe the right view is. But what I think is that for individuals, that is the notion of blame and that the abstract condition is the one that's a weird one that is not really capturing their true belief. Yeah. And, and, you know, by, by saying that you are taking, and I'm, this is what, one of the things I think we agree upon the most on this issue, uh, the, what philosophy would call the Strawsonian view that our our beliefs about moral responsibility and blame and praise are constituted by uh, our emotional responses to people based on what they do. They're not so side funny. effects of the belief. So, you know, up till P.F. Strawson in that awesome paper, which I think we mentioned last uh, uh, last time, uh, the the idea was we have these beliefs and these beliefs determine the appropriateness of certain emotions. And what P.F. Strawson did, and I, you know, every day I wake up, I agree with his paper a little bit more, is he switched that around and say, no, it's our emotional responses that constitute our beliefs about these concepts, blame, blame praise, responsibility, even freedom. And, uh, and I think that's right. Right, I, I now think that's right, and uh, so so P.F. Strawson refers to these these sort of emotional reactions as the reactive attitudes, right? And so the idea here is you're you're responding emotionally to these 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 moral infractions or whatever social infractions, and um, and so but one of the things he points out, which is something that that I I want to talk to you a little bit about, was that view makes sense, but when you take into account that we sometimes don't what he calls sometimes we can suspend those reactive attitudes, that, that it really is the case that sometimes somebody does something that really infuriates you, and then you find out that they're mentally ill. And then you say, as, as uh, we were talking to a local here from Costa Rica um, about, uh, about crime and blame and punishment here in Costa Rica, and what he was pointing out was that one of the common reactions to the acts of a criminal is to, to react with sort of sympathy and say, pobrecito, which means poor guy. Um, and so what happens is that somebody will commit a crime, they, so somebody breaks and enters, steals something from you, and then you just say, well, you know, the guy comes from a poor family. Um, so we can do that, right? It, it might happen after the initial reactive attitude even, but, but you might get angry and say, but, you know, now that I think about it, uh, the guy couldn't have, have helped what he did. Uh, so if we can do that, right, sometimes, then... What is, what is to prevent us from doing it all the time? Right. That's a really good question, and it's one that uh, philosophers have, have used to criticize Strawson, including his own son, Galen Strawson, who argued that the incompatibilist intuition is what he called enshrined in the reactive attitudes themselves, which is another way, I think, of making your point, right, that 
our reactive attitudes seem often to respond to to what extent these things were out of their control, like they were insane or they grew up in an impoverished environment. Right. Uh, Two things in response, if I'm going to defend Strawson on this, which I'm inclined to anyway. Uh, first is his, his view has plenty of room for our reactive attitudes being mitigated for uh, a whole wide range of uh, factors, right? Including the factors like the person is insane or the person's under a lot of stress. Uh, the person's uh, maybe... Ate too many Twinkies and therefore ate, committed murder. Right, and therefore killed their parents. <laughs> uh, well, no, that would be one, right, where I don't think the reactive attitudes would be all that <laughs> mitigated. Uh, but, uh, but again, But though, that's but not a threat to his theory uh, per, per se. What would be a threat to his theory is if the hearing that somebody's actions were determined... Uh, mitigated uh, our reactive attitudes. But his point is that's the one thing that has nothing to do with when our resentment or our reactive attitudes are mitigated or with or or, or uh, eliminated, right? Uh, it's always something far more specific, like the person's insane or under a lot of stress or... But that uh, sounds like it's just a, a, a descriptive claim, you know, and, and it... it, it if it is the case that you come to believe that determinism should mitigate your reactive attitudes, I guess what I'm asking is then if you are convinced then why not – why can't that serve as input in the same way that insanity serves as input? But then again, so, so then you're inverting his project, right? You can't – according to his project, you would be doing what he called over-intellectualizing the facts. You cannot become convinced theoretically that uh, – Determinism should mitigate the reactive attitudes. That's getting things backwards. The, uh, your reactive attitudes, and in all their complexity, including some of the complex, uh, complex types of mitigation that, you, that you've been talking about, they are what constitute those beliefs. The beliefs but certain, don't come before. But the, but the, the beliefs, beliefs are insanity. Prior. But the belief that an insanity, that insanity uh, or mental illness could mitigate, isn't a pre-theoretical one. I mean, it's one that's had to be sort of fleshed out. So, so our notions of what disease is ha- has you know uh, has, has deeply affected. You're right, and, yeah. and it deeply affects our our reactive attitudes now. So why? Why can't that continue to happen with sort of a, a growing realization that determinism is true? I mean, it could, but his bet is that's never going to eliminate uh, our reactive attitudes because they're too central. They're too much of an, a, a central part of our humanity. Uh, these interpersonal relationships and our uh, and and the way we address these people that that can't be threatened just by the theoretical truth of determinism. It can be threatened by other things, um, but uh, he doesn't think it's possible for that to happen, and he also doesn't think it would be desirable for that to happen. Now, you know, if you press somebody like uh, a criminal, uh, and Gary Watson has used this example, Robert Harris, you know about the Robert Harris case? This guy no. who committed this horrible murder, and then you read about his childhood, and it's, it's if, if, if possible more horrible than than the murder, and then you, all of a sudden you start to not feel anywhere near as resentful towards him. Uh, the threat, I think, 
is that if what we're responding to with our reactive attitudes there is the fact that this person was determined to become the kind of monster that he is, then uh, he can't claim that uh, the reactive attitudes and therefore our beliefs in moral responsibility are insulated from the threat of determinism because uh, by his own theory, those attitudes constitute our beliefs about moral responsibility. So if they respond uh, to, as maybe they're doing in the Robert Harris case, uh, that's a threat. But just the fact that they get mitigated at all, he completely concedes. He says, sure, but they don't get mitigated because you tell them that determinism is true. And, you know, this, the, the Nichols and Nob is a good example of that, right? right. That sort of supports his theory. Right. Uh, so I, Let's so talk about... Well, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Is it, I, and I've always liked that P.F. Strawson paper, but I, I've always taken it as, as deeply insightful about human psychology in sort of a descriptive... Uh, in, in a descriptive sense. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still not convinced that, that somebody might not, you know, come to... He calls it over-intellectualizing, but, I, you know, I'm still not clear maybe on, on the, the possibility seems reasonable to me that somebody could accept the truth of determinism and then learn to suspend all of their active attitudes, although I think that just empirically it's implausible. And, you know, um, there, you know people say that, that about Spinoza. People say that right. about certain uh, Buddhist uh, monks. And right. I think, you know, when I was arguing against Strassen, uh, in in my paper, I, I said, look, uh, you don't have to get all the way there, but you could get part of the way there. Like somebody who uh, was raised really religiously and then, you know, starts to become an atheist, but still feels the pull of all sorts of other religious uh, beliefs and forces and still... So he never quite gets to the point where every one of his beliefs, you know, about God are consistent, but he, but he moves a long way because of some theoretical arguments that he, that he read... Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I kind of agree with you, but um, I also, I, I, like I said, every day I'm starting to see the centrality of our emotions to this topic and the very peripherality, if that's a word. <laughs> peripheral, peripheral nosity. <laughs> the peripheral nosity <laughs> of our theoretical beliefs as sort of an important reflection, as a, as a true reflection of what we... Uh, of what we believe about this topic. Right. Uh, All right, so let's uh, take another quick break and we'll come back and wrap up uh, this edition of Very Bad Wizard. I want that son of a bitch dead. I want him dead. I want him dead. I'm dead. What am I alone in this world? Did I ask you what you're trying to do? Did I ask you what you're trying to do? I want you to get this fuck where he breathes. I want you to find this Nancy boy out of your nest. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. So... You, that that might be a uh, the sort of clip that we would use on in a discussion of revenge, but the reason that I I like it is because of the the mention of killing someone's family, um, 
even though they really didn't do anything, right? Um, and so maybe... Yeah, so let's... Uh, so, I mean, the... And this is another sort of twist, a bizarre twist to the free will moral responsibility debate, one that I've become very interested in. Uh, there's almost just a baseline assumption that in order to deserve blame for something, you actually have to have done it. Uh, but right. so, so we can like tweak with these thought thought exa- like these these puzzles, um, thought, the, experiments. Dilemma, thought experiments, and and actual experiments where you change. You know whether the person really had control over what they did, but in all cases, it's them doing it. <laughs> there's never, there's never a case where it's not them doing it, and yet it does seem like. And I, we talked about this a little bit last time in terms of the difference between collectivist cultures and individualist cultures. But even uh, in individualist cultures, you do get this sense of responsibility for actions that you are connected to, not through having done them right, but uh, some other kind of connection, a genetic relation uh, or, um, or, or some other kind of social relation. So, so t- you've done some really, really cool studies on this question. So why don't you describe them for us? Yeah, well, thanks. For, uh, the, the, the idea here was, you know, you don't have to go far to find cases of intuitions for, for moral responsibility that, for something that somebody really had no control over. And, and so we started with this, this notion that, that I, you know, p- perhaps is not intuitive for everybody, but it's certainly culturally widespread that, uh, that one might be responsible for, for lack of a better term, the sins of their father. And so the idea here is simply that, that if your genetic relative did something uh, morally reprehensible, that you're in some measure tainted by this, but t- but tainted not 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 just by mere association, but somehow deserving of of blame or of uh, you know you some owe compensation sort of, of something, right? Something like that, right? Right. And so uh, so you know there's there is a I, I think both in the Bible and in the Quran there are these references to the sins of the father visiting uh, visiting up to the third and fourth generations. Um, and that does seem to, to violate our sense of justice, but but nonetheless, it, it uh, yeah, very. I mean, in my view, that violates. Uh, I mean, can you imagine American. your daughter your daughter getting punished for all of your myriad sins and uh, indiscretions? God save her! <laughs> um, so we did a series of studies where we we sought to test this. Uh, whether this idea had any sort of whether we could we could demonstrate that there was any intuition that that there was genetic sort of responsibility tra- transfer of responsibility, um, I think that the the most the, the most illustrative study of the package this is with um, Eric Goldman and Paul Bloom was one in which we asked people uh, we we basically told everybody about a guy who who realized that his great grandfather had been He'd been a factory owner and had been sort of really just a, a morally reprehensible character. He had really taken advantage of his workers and been sort of cruel. And what we asked people, we basically told people that this guy just found out that his great-grandfather had done this. He had amassed this fortune. And, um, and this guy comes upon some money, sort of as a windfall, he gets, gets some money, and he knows for sure that he wants to, to give a portion of that money to charity. 
we said he finds the descendants of some of these people that were mistreated by his great-grandfather. They still are poor and destitute, and he knows that, that they could really use the money. But there's also this charity, the Ch- Children's Hunger Fund, I think we called it, something that, that he was also considering whether or not to donate his money. And so we said simply, do you think that he should donate his money to the descendants of these mistreated people or to this Hungry Children's Fund? And Did the, you give any information about how the descendants of the people were doing? Uh, yeah, we said we said that they were still sort of poor and and okay. right and <clears throat> but the one thing that we made sure to point out was that none of the money that this guy had had any tie to his great grandfather's sort of financial uh, gain, right? That that there had been that the family had at some point lost their fortune entirely, and that this money that he was looking to donate, you know, is not blood money, right? There was no right. uh, there was no way in which the people deserved. This money, and so what we manipulated was whether the man was an adopted member of the family that he had been adopted as a baby, or whether he was a genetic descendant, right? Direct, direct, directly genetically related. And what we found was that people tended they they were more likely to say that that the genetically related individual should donate some of the money to the descendants of the mistreated family than than the adopted one. Right? That was the only information that was different. So somehow this this wasn't a direct question of moral responsibility, but it was sort of a going a, in a roundabout way testing the intuition that somehow he was responsible or maybe not responsible, but at least that he he had some duty to. So it's moral responsibility and maybe the sense of obligation, right? What you owe right. uh, to what what we owe to people. Uh, right, and so right. so. What's your? I mean, that's a really cool result, right? Why it should make any difference that this person? So first of all, why he owes money, whether he's adopted or genetically related, right. uh, to there's two really interesting things about it. Right? <laughs> why that? Uh, why he should uh, even consider even consider giving it to them? I, I take it the children's fund is. A slightly more, if, if you're you thinking about it from get, a utilitarian perspective, right. that money would would be put to better use, perhaps, and just from a purely utilitarian analysis. Right. And and you know, we we it, it could be that that giving it to one family, you would feel better because you knew exactly that it was helping the family. Then that's why we, you know, the the difference between the adopted and the genetic genetic condition is is. Um, is still interesting because in both cases, uh, the difference was across those two conditions. So what's your explanation for those results? Well, so the only explanation that we really offer, and this we did three studies, uh, we think that there is just this intuitive sense that there's a trans, that, that people somehow are, are essentialists about this, that, that there is some feature that we, we hold as as primary that, that somehow your essence is transferred across bloodlines. Um, now, is it, what do you mean by essence? Is it a is it yeah, like your debts? Your debts transfer your, or do you actually have their kind of personality to some degree? Or yeah, I mean, to to be core. honest, our explanation gets about as far as the description of those results, right? And that that right. what we're basically saying is that something is being transferred by. We have a naive intuition that genetically that that somehow bloodline matters, 
more than simply a, a deep social relation. That uh, so we don't we don't get farther than just simply describe those that very point in what we think are a bit more theoretical terms. But the truth of the matter is, I think this is probably just one of those heuristics that makes sense in normal life. That is, it, it makes sense to say, if your son harmed me and he doesn't have any money, I'm going to go to the father and ask. Or or, vice or if your daughter harms somebody, right, you're going right. to feel, then you're gonna feel like you responsible. should. Right. And not just because... You know, her being raised by you, you know, you made a mistake. Right. That, that, that's not really the issue, right? No. I mean, you could be convinced that there was nothing that you did that led her to commit this offense or something like that and still feel responsible for... Right. I think that there is some sort of psychological primacy to just even that, that knowledge that you're related. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, because because these, this belief might, might, even though we did this with an American sample, we use these subtle questions. We never asked directly, like, is that person morally responsible? Because we, our, our, our thought was that no, nobody would say, no. say yeah, everybody would yeah. say no. Yeah. Um, but there might actually be cultural differences in, in some cultures. People might actually more explicitly endorse. So let me ask you this question. Somebody shows up at your door. Yeah. And uh, they say, Tamler, uh, I'm in the United States. I'm, I'm, I'm from another country. I have no money. I have no food. Can I stay at your house? Uh, I know that you don't know me. Now, uh, suppose that in one case, they just heard your name and they came to your house. In another case, they actually are a distant relative. They're actually related to you. They're like, you right. know, you don't know me, but I'm your cousin. Right. Do you feel like you have a duty to help them if they happen to be related to you? Probably. Right. My so, gut would, would say that, yeah. Yeah, and I feel I feel the same way that that in fact there's no good reason that a complete stranger who comes to my door and asks me for money and a place to stay should get some sort of advantage just by dint of a genetic relation. Well, there's no Peter Singer kind of good reason. There's no good right. There's no Peter <laughs> at least I should say there's no good reason to distinguish between them and and that is that they're the fact that they're genetically related doesn't seem like a good reason. Um, because there are good reasons to help anybody, I suppose. But but yeah, but it's so. Well, I, don't know if I, so I disagree with you. I mean, it depends what you think. Of, uh, it, uh, you're almost sort of assuming that a good reason has to be a utilitarian reason. Well, so why? But why would the accident of being genetically related in in a distant way have? I mean. To, I mean, to why clear, should like, you help anybody? Period. Right. I mean, at some level, it go, it goes down to brute intuition, and or, our, I mean, you could have utilitarian reasons for helping anybody. Yeah, but no, but why? Why should you help anybody for utilitarian reasons? But but no. So, so I mean, fair, fair enough. But but suppose that that uh, I don't know. I mean, we can just we can say that there are some reasons that are better than others. Like so, you. It would be weird if somebody was uh, in in need. Two people were in need. One of them was wearing a red shirt. One of them was wearing a blue shirt. And you were just like, I, I just like people in blue shirts. That wouldn't be a good reason. No. That's what I'm saying. I like, don't feel that that's in, but but it's not a good reason. I think not because uh, it is just completely arbitrary in that in in any sense that we can distinguish. It's not a good reason because we don't actually feel like we should help. 
people in blue shirts over people in red shirts. If we did, that then it might turn, and, and, well, and that was some core part of our moral lives. Then I think uh, you all, have to accept that it would be a good reason. We can't. We can't. All you're saying though is that that, that whatever, however your psychology is built, then that's a good reason. No, because there are other things. We should we should save this discussion for our cultural <laughs> differences and our uh, you know moral relativity skepticism kind of uh, discussion. My point is ultimately it's going to come down to your psychology and what your sense of moral values are. But all I'm saying is uh, that and why is your psychology have this tie to? Because something has to. I mean, so, so your psychology is going to have a tie to whether you think you should help anybody at all, period. But, but why, why this sort of abstract information that they're third cousins? Yeah. Well, because I think we have it, – it, it goes to a core value that we have special obligations to our families that we don't have to other people. I mean, you know, why should you uh, – Send your daughter to private school if you live in a neighborhood with bad public schools rather than send all that money to, uh, you know, help that, I mean, that children makes, from dying from uh, malaria. That, right? I mean, that makes sense. But but is it so it what doesn't make sense to me is that a third cousin who shows up at your door, uh, all of a sudden an obligation to somebody you've never even met before and is from a completely different part of the world, all of a sudden you feel this sense of duty. And, and maybe, I mean, I it's think we agree that, that it's an intuition. Yeah, it's an but, intuition. And, and, and what's interesting about what you're doing with this, I think, uh, at, when it comes to responsibility, when it comes to blame, when it comes to what we owe other people, it's a really complicated set of sometimes mutually inconsistent beliefs That's and right. intuitions. And to tie it back, just really quickly, tie it back to some of the experimental philosophy literature, one of the things I like about this study is that um, we we explicitly didn't a, – a lot. My, some of my problem with the experimental philosophy literature is that they ask so explicitly these very, very sometimes complex concepts like – uh, you know, they're supposed totally that the universe agreed. is determined. Is are you responsible in this universe? Which is is so abstract that it gets away f- that it gets away from our everyday use of the term responsibility and blame. And in this case, we really were just looking at uh, as an you say, intuition a, about a about a real life or plausible type of case that we can all relate to. Right. I think I, I totally agree with you, and that's I think I. I want all experimental philosophy to virt- almost exclusively focus on those kinds of cases rather than, okay, there's a world, Erta, where uh, where right. people on that world right. aren't morally so – their actions are determined. Right. Who the people fuck there knows can't, what, how, how, like, what people on Erta should like, – Suppose can't, they can't use counterfactuals about H3O in the Erta world. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that's not a joke. I, I bet somebody's working on that right now. But you know people are naive uh, – <laughs> So on on the Erta world, uh, uh, Girdle was yes. so it turns out Gru doesn't start until <laughs> until 2012. On, on the on the Erta world, <laughs> on the Furta world, I mean, uh, so yeah, no, that's what I, that's one of the things I love about the study, and it's also I I think that as uh, as, as someone you know, I think it's going to be a student of yours, right, or a someone you're working with, Nina. Right, right. She uh, called it. A stro- a she said our intuitions uh, is a, a clusterfuck. Yes, uh, that's and right. And I think sh- she's right. And it also shows, in addition to some of the, the, you know, the issues with experimental philosophy, but just the idea of capturing 
them in a simple theory, whether a compatibilist or incompatibilist, seems right. to me to be, a, and, and especially one that's going to generalize to you know, everyone across the world, seems to me to be uh, a bit of a doomed project. And actually, I like the, the P.F. Strassen sort of has a, that approach has more flexibility, I think, to deal with the, the complexity of our judgments and right. our beliefs and feelings right. as there, they really are. Yeah, it really has to, one really has to go out of their way to make this distinction. As much as I love the influence of philosophy on, on sort of psychology and, and the, the growing understanding and appreciation of empirical results, it, it probably just isn't the case that, that people are either compatibilists or incompatibilists because those con- I feel the same way about uh, deontology and utilitarianism. It just, it just would be weird if it were the case that, that, that naive psychology was one of those things. And I think that it's much more interesting to ask, well, under what conditions do people seem to have intuitions that match this general view under what conditions do they seem to have, you know, are there cultural differences? Are there situational differences? And, uh, you know, and I certainly don't think that people uh, would reflect upon their, their views about genetic responsibility and make laws that would, say, hold people responsible for the actions of their great-grandfather. Right. But, but that's not to say that their intuitions about responsibility aren't broad and complex and nuanced and that in some cases we really do think that, you know, fuck you because of what your father did to me, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe on that note, we should wrap up. I guess I should add that John Doris and Josh Nob have, have sketched out a view called variantism about responsibility that sort of reflects about what you're saying, which is that under certain conditions, we're compatibilist. Under certain other conditions, we're incompatibilist. I mean, even that, I think, is a little too neat and tidy, but it's a step in the direction of... of recognizing the complexity of things. I mean, I think things change as you go grow older. My intuitions changed when I had, like, the, the day, you know, when my daughter was born. Right. Uh, so the human mind is messy. Human mind is a clusterfuck. <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. more information about this episode, including show notes and links, and to listen to other episodes, please visit us at www.verybadwizards.com. Just a very bad wizard.